Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 29 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Made Vale, West London, 6.20pm, Sunday, March 24th, 1996. George Fregistus locked his blue Lincoln Continental in a secure car park on Lanark Road. He walked to the exit. He had plans that evening and wanted to prepare. George was just about to open the door of the dimly lit concrete building when a man suspiciously dressed for a spring day in an anorak gloves and a balaclava took him by surprise and tried to wrestle him to the ground. George shouted, made a scene, put up a fight, but the assailant overpowered him. The element of surprise gave his attacker an advantage. For a brief moment they were alone. Then a car stopped nearby. Three men hurriedly got out. (laughs) 
The commotion made by George alerted the men to his location. In a few short seconds, it would be clear whose side they were on. George Fregistus was outnumbered, and despite his best efforts to cause a scene, no one hurt him or came to his aid. The first man was armed and threatened to kill George. The other three tried to silence the victim by covering his mouth with brown sticky tape. When they produced a black leather mask, George began to struggle, begging them to stop through a series of muffled screams. The men relented. A blanket was thrown over George's head and handcuffs secured his wrists. The same roll of tape was used to bind his legs together. Then he was thrown in the back of a car before the boot was closed. The journey began, but in spite of the heavy London traffic, it was not long before they stopped. George Fregistus had no way of knowing the gun that he had been threatened with could not be fired. Regardless, four men against the admittedly unfit 43-year-old Fregistus would not have ended well. His abduction aside, that Sunday was not a typical day in the life of George Fregistus. He was behind the wheel of a car, but this was an exception. He had given his chauffeur, Dennis Banks, the day off. By the time the gang and their prisoner arrived at their intended destination, George's life had been threatened numerous times. He was told to be quiet. Once inside the house where his captors planned to hold him, George was stripped down to just his boxer shorts. Even his glasses were removed. A black leather mask with a zip where his mouth was located was put over his face. Earplugs were forced in his ears. Again, another threat to his life was made. He was told that if he saw any of the men that abducted him, he would be killed. He was given a bottle in which he was to urinate and George was pushed into a walk-in cupboard onto a chair that snugly fit in the space. There was no room to stretch or lay out. The space was six feet by three feet. He was made to swallow tranquilizers to make him calm and more manageable. They were the only solid thing he consumed for the first few days. George Fregistus was expected to be holding a small dinner party in his four-bedroom home the day he was kidnapped. His housekeeper expected him to be home to play host to his guests, but they were left waiting. Fearing something was wrong, his friends called all the hospitals in the area to see if he had been in an accident or taken ill. The next day, George didn't turn up at the office where he worked. Usually a late riser, rarely in until it approached mid-morning, the kidnappers made him call in his absence at 9.30am. He tried to drop hints to the person on the other end of the line, 
His excuse for not coming in was that he had spent the weekend away with his girlfriend. George was single. He hoped they would realise this comment was out of place, but perhaps they didn't think it was their business to question their boss's love life. In the moments where George Frigistus was permitted to listen, he was threatened by who appeared to be the man in charge. Syringes were scattered around the room. He was told he would be killed by the air that was going to be injected into his veins. George was forced to make more calls cancelling meetings and appointments that had been made for that day, staying remarkably calm as he did so. He was desperate to let someone know what had happened to him. Cleverly, he neglected to make three calls. He did not cancel two of his most important business meetings of the day. The third was an appointment with his mother. They had arranged to have dinner together. She was based in Athens. There was no way he would just not turn up and leave her waiting. He knew his mother well. Instinctively, she knew her son had not turned up because of his forgetfulness. There was something seriously wrong. A day and a half after the kidnapping, a telephone call was made to George's family in Athens. The voice on the other end of the line demanded a multi-million pound ransom. It was reportedly believed that their initial request was in the region of £10 million. George's family were instructed not to inform the authorities. Undeterred, they immediately did just that. Scotland Yard's Specialist Operations Department were contacted and put on the case. A media blackout was put in place so as to not warn the kidnappers the police had been informed. For the first four days, George only drank water. He refused any food he was given. His stomach would not allow him to eat. The kidnappers began to be insistent. He had no choice. By this point, he had resigned to the fact he was going to die. When a takeaway was ordered, George was asked how he liked his steak. A seemingly normal yet surreal conversation considering the circumstances. He was relieved. Perhaps they didn't plan on killing him. George Frigistus, deprived of most of his senses, had figured out whether it was day or night by subtle vibrations coming from the underground trains nearby. In the early hours of the morning, the sensations would stop. The undergrounds would close and only start up again when rush hour approached. Dozens of calls were made to the Fergistus family. The financial demands were steadily reducing. There were played recordings of George saying things that his captors forced him to tell his loved ones. As much as the captors kept the pressure on George's family, they kept it on George too. 
He was frequently reminded that if his family did not pay up, he would be murdered. They were a close family and one that was deeply concerned for their relative's life. Some of George's family flew to London to converse face-to-face with officers from Scotland Yard and be near the negotiations. As negotiations continued with the kidnappers, surveillance and an undercover operation was supported by more than 50 officers from the Metropolitan Police's organised crime group and the Directorate of Intelligence. The Fregistus family were instructed to stall for time, and they did. The ransom was finally agreed at less than a third of the original sum. They would not budge beyond three million. They had managed to gather the money together, a price the family were willing to pay if all else failed to get George back alive. Mother and son were incredibly close. The stress the kidnap was causing to the family was immeasurable. George Fregista's chauffeur expressed guilt over the kidnapping, as it happened when he was not at work. He later told a reporter for the Daily Mirror newspaper, If only I had been there, this might not have happened. I can't understand why anyone would want to kidnap him. Dennis Banks went on to say he didn't know of any enemies that George Fregistus had made, and although his employer had money, Banks said he was not at all flash. George Fregistus was a shipping agent and the director of two ship management companies. His principal company was World Carrier London, a shipping agency. It was through his family he had begun work in the shipping industry. George's mother, Rhea, controlled the family business after her husband passed away. At one point, she had loaned her son £1.3 million when one of George's companies was struggling. George was also a consultant to the family firm for which he earned a yearly base salary of around £51,000. A member of Greece's Millionaire Club in Piraeus, this didn't automatically mean that George Fregistus was a millionaire. Membership to the club is dependent on the size of the fleet you own. It was reported around four years earlier he had owned eight huge tankers, but had since sold at least three of them. Still, George oversaw at least 700,000 in tonnage. A business correspondent from a newspaper in Athens said Phrygistus was relatively well-known in Greece. There are certainly more important players in the shipping world, the reporter wrote. George was single and he had been based in London for many years. He was described as quiet and smartly dressed. Make no mistake, the man in his 40s had money. He had a housekeeper, a chauffeur and a four-storey home in a desirable part of London. But the kidnappers may have been mistaken when enacting their elaborate plan to kidnap George Fregistus. 
George Frigistus was also the name of George's multi-millionaire cousin. George's relative was much wealthier. In the mid-90s, the turnover for his business was £30 million. He ran Greece's most prominent trading company for agricultural equipment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Time was running out. Nine days had passed since George was abducted. The kidnappers were using mobile phones, and this had made it very difficult to trace the calls. They would make ransom demands whilst driving. They would play the cassette tapes of George Fregistus to his family down the phone, unaware that the authorities were involved and also listening in on the calls. Finally, the police thought they had found the kidnappers by tracing the car they used to abduct George Fregistus and tracing the calls they had made. Two men in the vehicle were caught by surprise when officers surrounded their parked car in Golders Green, northwest London. A trained marksman had them in his sights. 
an officer opened the door and grabbed the mobile phone from the hand of one of the suspects. He was partway through a call. On the other end of the line was a member of George's family trying to secure his release. Two more of the kidnappers were captured in a rented house on Hogan Mews near Paddington train station. The multi-storey property had been rented by two men for the past year. Impeccable references had been supplied, and the rent was always paid on time. There was no reason to suspect the ideal tenants were planning to use the property for illegal activity. Police had worked around the clock to identify the suspects. Surveillance was carried out without the kidnappers suspecting that their every move was being watched. The house, where the curtains were always drawn, was raided half an hour after the first two suspects were arrested. Two more men were taken into custody without incident. Five guns were seized. Residents were disturbed to find out what had been going on in the peaceful muse. A neighbour said her three-year-old daughter had played outside the residence days earlier oblivious to the fact a man was being held hostage inside. Direct neighbours said they had heard only muffled conversations in the middle of the night. George Frigistus had remained in the cramped and confined walk-in cupboard where he was put on the first day of his capture. He was alive, though he was in great distress. He had cuts and bruises on his wrists, and his mouth and eyes were sealed shut with brown tape. George Frigistus did not need hospital care for his physical injuries, but it was noted his eyes were very shrunken, and he had lost a lot of weight in those nine days. Approximately a stone. Commander Roy Ram of Scotland Yard Organised Crime Group spoke about the search and told reporters the place he was kept was like the black hole of Calcutta. He was kept in a tiny cupboard with no light and little air. He was kept deaf, dumb and blind, deprived of all senses of time and what was going on. This was quite clearly a specifically targeted and carefully orchestrated kidnap carried out by a team who had clearly been planning it for some time. On the subject of the Frigistus family, Ram said, The family were fully cooperative throughout. They have been absolutely outstanding. Speaking about George Frigistus, Ram added, The fact that he has been as brave as he has and survived is a tribute to him. He has been through a terrible ordeal. Officers who rescued Frigista said the captive was very disturbed, very worried, very upset and very frightened. He spoke briefly about the trauma he suffered. This has been a terrifying ordeal for me and my family. I feared for my safety and wondered if I would ever be freed. Appearing at a news conference with Commander Roy Ram on April 2nd, 
George Frigistus was still shaken by his experience. He was visibly trembling. Barely well enough to respond to questions about what had happened, George Frigistus said, He didn't have any sleep. I don't feel very well, and I'm still in shock. Four men faced charges at Horse Ferry Road Magistrates Court in Westminster a day after they were arrested. They were identified as Konstantinos Kokolis, 39, the Nassis Agravos, 26, Jemal Masawe and Jean-Marc Meru, both aged 36. Two of the men from France and two from Greece had come to the UK specifically renting the house a year before the kidnapping of George Frigistus. The pretrial hearing lasted just 15 minutes. French translators were provided from Asawe and Maru, as they were not fluent in English. They wore grey tracksuit tops and blue trousers, while Kokolis and Zagravos wore prison-issue white paper suits. No application for bail was put forward to any of the accused. They remained in prison while awaiting trial. George Frigistus experienced issues with not only his physical but his mental health after being kidnapped. He suffered pain in his chest. Confinement in such a space with little room to move changed the way he walked. He experienced nightmares about his ordeal. By the time the court case started, his night terrors had begun to settle, but reliving the nine days in an unusually long four-month court case triggered an increasing number of sleepless nights. Legal proceedings began at the Old Bailey in November 1996. The jury for the trial was 12 random Londoners. As fate would have it, a journalist was among the 12. Trevor Grove was an ex-editor of the Sunday Telegraph newspaper. The jurors were warned by the judge not to be affected by any outside influences at all. The four accused Konstantinos Kokolis, who was thought to be the ringleader, the Nassis Sagravos, Jemul Musawe and Jean-Marc Maru were charged with kidnapping, blackmail and false imprisonment. The four denied every count they faced. The prosecution was led by Joanna Corner QC. She walked the jury through the case, meticulously piecing together the evidence. Recordings of the ransom demands were played to the court. This was an unusual case. It's not hard to understand why it dragged on for as long as it did, due to the sheer number of witnesses that included George's family and business partners, along with nearly every officer that had worked the investigation. Also, one of the suspects, the ringleader of the group, 
acted as his own defence counsel which only compounded matters. The argument put forward was that the kidnap was set up and planned by George Frigistus, in a ploy to get money from his own family to pay off some of his mounting debts. As he gave evidence in his own defence, Konstantinos Kokolis told the court that it was George Frigistus's idea. He was in on it. It was something that had been planned so Frigistus could quickly dissolve all the gambling debt he had built up. It was alleged the kidnapping had been in the works for about a year. Kokolis had recruited the other three men to aid in the scheme. A great deal of evidence was submitted which not only highlighted that Frigistus gambled, but it bordered on obsession. He would travel abroad just to gamble. Sometimes he lost, sometimes he won, and when he won, he won big. George had hidden this side of his life from his family. George Frigistus categorically denied he had anything to do with his kidnapping. He was extensively cross-examined about his possible involvement and his finances. Not only did Frigistus take the stand for several weeks, but so did his mother. She had just learned of her son's gambling habits, something which he had again turned to after his kidnap but now she was being informed of the financial irregularities found in the businesses George was affiliated with. There had been substantial investigations into his earnings and the companies he owned or had a share in. Each defence counsel kept requesting more and more information. One of the companies he was involved with was called Intermeet. As little was known about it, an application was put forward so yet more digging could commence into this new company. But the judge refused the request. He felt the information already gathered was enough. One of the pieces of evidence shown to the court was the black leather hood that George Fregistus was forced to wear during his time in captivity. Upon seeing it, he became visibly shaken and upset. The prosecutor highlighted in closing that it was somewhat strange. The claim the kidnapping was staged was not made until after the defendants had seen the Crown's case. Some counterpoints were raised by the defence. The handcuffs that bound George Frigistus had no key, nor was there a lock on the cupboard where he was held. In his summing up to the jury, the judge, Mr Justice Goldstein, put the issue in a nutshell. This case is all about money and greed. Every approach brings you back to the same starting point. Are you satisfied so that you are sure that George Fregistus was not involved?
As the four defendants had not admitted their guilt, the case went through a lengthy trial, making George Frigistus endure more trauma with his financial records laid bare. The jury took three and a half days to reach their verdicts. They arrived at a decision for each charge on March 26, 1997. They were unanimous on every count. Konstantinos Kokolis, who was the ringleader, was sent to prison for a minimum of 25 years. Thanasis Sagravos, Jemul Musawe and Jean-Marc Maru each received 16 years. The judge wanted the case to act as a deterrent to rising kidnapping cases in the UK. Even though he had presented himself as an upstanding citizen throughout the trial, Konstantinos Kokolis had a lengthy criminal record and spent a great deal of time in a Greek prison, something that could not be disclosed to the jury. For 25 years, Kokolis was given related to his significant role as the instigator in the crime. The other three sentences reflected the lesser roles played by the others convicted. The judge told them, The crime of kidnapping after murder is the vilest, foulest crime known to the English law. Mr Justice Goldstein said of the convicted men's feelings towards George Frigistus, they poured their scorn and hatred over him in the witness box. Phrygistus was overcome with emotion during sentencing. He hugged his mother tightly. That was not the last time that George Phrygistus would take the stand. While the first trial had been in full swing... In December 1996, Egyptian-born Kariakos Pantelides was brought before Horse Ferry Road Magistrates Court and charged with kidnap, assault, false imprisonment and conspiring to assist in the retention of the proceeds of crime. The 66-year-old Pantelides was retired, although he had previously worked as a successful fashion wholesaler in Greece. Like Phrygistus, he was a high roller who often gambled large sums of money. The police had found cassette tapes amongst the treasure trove of evidence discovered in the property on Hogan Mews, where George Phrygistus was held. It appeared much like the police. The kidnappers had recorded all of the phone conversations they made. On several of the recordings, the voice of Konstantinos Kokolis can be heard along with Kyriakos Pantelides. The inquiry team considered him to be party to the kidnapping. However, the conversations on the tapes were somewhat ambiguous. Pantelides spoke of a suitcase of money, but the exact nature of his involvement was not as clear-cut as the other men who had been convicted. The case went to trial, 
and George Frigistus again tried to relive the events that saw him kidnapped and held for nine days, cut off from the world around him. But it was all too much, and this time he could not continue his testimony. The prosecution pressed ahead without George's recollection of the events. They questioned why Pantelides was speaking about a suitcase of money to a man who would later be convicted of kidnapping, and he had not even reported this conversation to the police. However, after a short trial and too many loose ends that frayed the prosecution's case, Keriakos Pantelides was found not guilty. Almost two years after the kidnapping, towards the end of February 1998 before the Royal Courts of Justice, the four men convicted argued their case. Each appealed the length of their sentences. They'd been convicted on count one, alleging kidnapping, count two, alleging false imprisonment, and count three, alleging blackmail. Konstantinos Kokolis had been sentenced to serve 25 years concurrently on counts 1 and 2, and 14 years concurrently on count 3. The other three appellants, Thanasis Sagravos, Jemun Musawe and Jean-Marc Maru, were sentenced to serve 16 years imprisonment on count 1 and 2 concurrently, and 10 years imprisonment on count 3 also concurrently. Sigravos's argument was being the youngest of the group at 26. He had been led astray by the ringleader, 39-year-old Kokolis. Also, the character witnesses provided by staff in charge of him in prison mentioned that he was a good worker. Musawe was the person who fetched the gun used in the kidnapping over from France. But again, Kokolis was framed as the one making the demands to get it. Sawe and Maru both had a minor grasp of English, and it was argued that this would make the time they faced behind bars harder. Not only that, but it would be more difficult for their families to come over from France to make prison visits. Maru's case of appeal was also put forward using a similar argument to Masawe's. His role was not as large in the kidnapping as Kokolis. It was said that Maru was, quote, a simple man of peasant stock who had fallen under the influence of Kokolis. Both Masawe and Maru claimed they extended acts of kindness to George Frigistus when he was being held as a prisoner, though they did not list exactly what they were. For all four men, it was proposed that the sentencing was unusually high then unheard of in a kidnap case in which the victim was found alive. The trauma suffered by George Frigistus and his family was recognised by the appeal judges due to the lack of remorse from the men responsible. He said, The appellants did not avail themselves of what would have been the one considerable mitigating factor, a plea of guilty. Far from it. They contested the case 
and made grave, highly insulting and untrue allegations against Mr. Phrygistus. Of course, they do not fail to be sentenced on that account, but as we have said, pleas of guilty would have resulted in a considerable reduction of the sentences. However, Lord Justice Swinton Thomas, Mr. Justice Jolet and Mr. Justice Astle presiding over the appeal, disagreed with the minimum terms handed down. They reduced the sentences of all four men. The judge's findings read, We have come to the conclusion that the judge's starting point was too high. We stress yet again that this was a case of the utmost gravity calling for very substantial and deterrent sentences. In the case of Corcollis, we quash the sentences of 25 years, and in their place we impose a sentence of 20 years. The sentence of 14 years on count three will be quashed and in its place he will serve a sentence of 11 years to run concurrently with the sentence of 20 years. The sentences of 16 years imprisonment imposed on Sir Gravos, Maru and Masawe will be quashed and in their place we impose sentences of 13 years on each count concurrently. Sentence of 10 years on count three will be quashed and in its place we impose a sentence of eight years imprisonment. It was also said that the four men responsible for the kidnap of George Fregistus should serve at least two-thirds of their new sentences in prison unless the decision was made by a parole board to release them earlier. Although the four men could be released after two-thirds of their term, the remainder of their sentences would be suspended, meaning if they committed another crime when they were released on licence, they would be charged for that crime and sent back to prison to serve the rest of their unserved sentence. So where are we now? A book written by Trevor Grove, The Jury Man's Tale, was released giving a first-hand account of what it was like to be on a jury. An extract of the book published in the I newspaper described how the jury made every effort to reach fair verdicts for each of the men charged. It read, The discussion was extraordinarily tiring. We went back over certain items of evidence again and again, with a patience I think we all found surprising. Nerves frayed but did not snap. No one said, oh to hell with it, let's take a vote and get out of here. George Fregistus, the jury, detectives who worked the case, the judge and the defence counsels attended the book's launch party. George said, I got a little emotional when I saw the judge. The judge said how much better I look than the last time he saw me. George Fregistus decided to have a new start and leave London. He returned to work in Athens. He told the Daily Telegraph in 1998, Coming home was my best cure. I just needed to be near my family.
Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Kellyanne Merritt, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.